Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Bring uh, my weather expert buddy Bruce Johnson in here for a couple of minutes. Hey, Bruce. How are you? I'm good. Um, so just quickly, um, before I get to the big snow in the eastern U.S., there's certainly some snow in the forecast. They say some flurries today, a little bit tonight, uh, and then again on Friday. It, nothing significant, though, huh? Right, exactly. Actually, what we're getting is storm after storm after storm after storm coming in from uh, British Columbia down to well, probably Northern California. There's coming in for every couple of days. Another storm comes in, and what we're getting is clippers that are well. Right now, the next one that we're going to get on Friday, it's in Vancouver Island, and it's just going to go to the east, and we'll get a little bit out of it, not much. And the same thing looks Sunday, Monday looks like the same thing. And uh, some of the low pressure areas that are coming into Oregon, Northern California, so on, they're coming in, but then they're down to Arizona and places like that. They're too far away from us. That's what happened with this one that we're going to talk about. It ran far too south, too far south of us to affect us at all, but it's certainly affecting people in Pennsylvania very soon. Well, no kidding. Uh, I mean, some areas they're saying could get two feet or 60 centimeters of snow. Yeah, easily, especially in some of the mountains in eastern Pennsylvania. You get some of those, there are mountains in that area. Uh, I could see higher amounts up at higher elevations. You know, it's near Scranton, Williamsport, that part of Pennsylvania is in this big area where it's just going to be at least a couple feet of snow in lots of places. And there could be more than that in higher elevations. So it's we're pretty much doing to them what a Colorado low can do to us. Mm-hmm. And listen, it's early. We haven't had any significant snow yet. But as you point out, when we start seeing these storms and these clippers that roll through and give us a bit here and a bit there, and then we see this big one in the eastern U.S., I mean, the door now is kind of open. Same with the cold weather, right? The door kind of opened on the cold, and then it got colder. Same with the snow. Right. And you know, with the, as long as the storms are active out west, sooner or later we'll get in the crosshairs of one of these things and we'll have to see what happens. The other thing is these clippers coming across, they go direct from west to east. So they're not grabbing big amounts of cold air, so we're not having any major Arctic outbreaks. Sooner or later, either something's going to come from the northwest or we're going to get a Colorado low that sucks the cold air down and we're going to get blasted. I just don't know when that's going to happen yet. Yeah, uh, December 16th today, so we're nine days away from Christmas. Uh, you were right when I was talking to you a week or so ago about possibly a brown Christmas or not much snow. It looks like we will have some snow on the ground for Christmas. But as you look at the long-term models, you know, 10, 12, even 14 days out, no significant amounts of snow for us, though, as far as you can tell, eh? Not yet. Not until I see a storm take a track that's going to affect us in that way where okay, what happened in Pennsylvania, what's happening in Pennsylvania, well, if we got on the northwest side of a storm that hit, say, Minneapolis, then then watch out because then we're going to get it. But I don't see anything tracking that way yet. There are a bunch of them coming in from the west coast, but we're getting all the ones that come into southwestern British Columbia and they just go east. All right, Bruce. Have a great day. Thank you. Well, thanks. You too. My weather expert buddy, Bruce Johnson, best way to get to his weather website is to go to my site. Just go to halanderson.ca, and uh, and then you can get to Bruce's site that way, halanderson.ca. Love having Bruce on. Joining us now, 
Uh, Brent Allen, Vice President at IG Wealth Management. Uh, Brent, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. Thanks for having me today. Well, and I have to apologize. We've bumped you around a couple times over the past few days. That's what happens in the news business, and and I apologize, but it's great to finally have you on. So thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks, thanks again. We really appreciate it. Yeah, um, you guys have uh, had a study, done, a survey done, There's a study, I guess. And um, now I knew this number was going to be low, but this seems even lower than I thought. Only twenty-seven percent of Canadians feel they are managing their debt effectively that's one of the findings here did that surprise you yes we went out and did a survey a general population survey of canada uh, 1500 individuals to find out how they're managing the pandemic and how uh, confident they are in their overall level of financial well-being and uh, we were quite surprised to see that only 27 percent or a quarter of canadians feel they're managing their debt effectively uh, which means that three quarters are feeling some type of pressure or stress uh, related to it. So that was quite surprising considering we saw that bankruptcies are, are quite low and consumer filings are quite low this year, but that may have been uh, related to some of the support that was provided with mortgage deferrals and other types of payments from the government earlier this year. So it feels like this is starting to catch up with us a little bit um, now that uh, you know we're, we're fairly deep into the pandemic here. Yeah, and when you do these surveys, it's a snapshot of, of all Canadians, but it is sort of interesting that, generally speaking, people are able right now, it seems, and I mean, unless they've lost their job, and, and that's different, but uh, people that are working have been able to tuck away a few bucks. They're not spending as much. Well, no, let me reword that. They're spending. They're not spending as much, but they're having a hard time tucking it away. So what's going on here? Well, we also found that uh, in the same uh, similar result there, that 25% of individuals felt confident about their budget and sticking to it, uh, but the other, again, 75% were not. And so I agree with you. It's been very interesting over the past year where certain expenses have disappeared. Uh, You know, very rarely am I putting gas in my vehicle, for one example. And, you know, uh, when we look at uh, eating out there, we we still try to support the local restaurants um, from, from takeout, but we're certainly not going out as much as we used to. And so even though you may have more uh, cash in your bank, you're, you're maybe spending it a little bit different or trying to adjust to online shopping if, if that's what you're doing or thinking about where you want to spend the dollars uh, next year and um, trying to really figure out how much money do you really have. And I think one of the challenges is people feel like today they're, you know, they might have a little bit more money in their account today, but what happens when things return to the, the way it, it might have been and uh, mm-hmm. will that impact their budget as well? So I think it's a, uh, just the uncertainty around potentially their their job in the future or the the current environment that really makes a challenge to to stick to that new budget i guess is what i would mm-hmm. say yeah and and final thought here and question for you and and i you know i'm speaking about me here too i find like i've kind of hit the pause button on many things and i wonder if during the pandemic uh, people aren't going well i'll worry about that later and as a result that's why we're seeing these numbers in this survey I think uh, what we what we saw was interesting is um, about half of the people in Canadians that had a financial plan said they're now considering putting uh, updating it, and for those that indicated they didn't have a financial plan, forty six percent said that they would make sense for them to get one. Hmm. And so I think what's happened is this has really caused us as a time to reflect uh, on the current situation and uh, really try to take stock of where we are today. And think about what's important to us. Uh, you know, many people were traveling for work or 
uh, you maybe weren't home as much for uh, family dinners or those, those personal contacts maybe got away from us. And now people are reprioritizing what might be important to them and how do they want to live the next five, 10 and, and years of their life, hopefully. So I think it's, it's caused us all to stop and, and pause and reflect on what's really important to us and what do we want to do. Interesting findings. Brent, thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Al. Uh, happy holidays to you and your listeners. Yes, you as well. Merry Christmas. Dr. Joel Kettner, former Chief Public Health Officer in Manitoba and Community Health Services Prof at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Kettner, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Nice to chat with you again. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, I wanted to bring you on to ask you about the vaccine rollout. We saw the first uh, uh, vaccinations today. Um, have you ever been involved in a rollout like this uh, or a vaccination program like this? Anything even close to this? Well, when you say anything even close, I'm going to say uh, yes, because, you know, we have to compare this, I guess, to two um, uh, similar types of uh, events. One is the annual influenza every year, which technically right. is a pandemic, and we, we roll out a vaccine program you know, with the same goals and intentions in many ways as what this program has. Uh, and then we had the H1N1, which, you know, was, again, an influenza, but it had a, it had a different twist on it, which to me is, uh, this, this is more reminiscent of the challenges uh, related to the, that uh, H1N1 pandemic for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which is that we didn't get the vaccine as soon as we wanted to, um, in fact, in Manitoba, we had, you know, a more severe first wave than a second wave. We didn't have the vaccine for the first wave. So so that sort of is a similar kind of problem in some ways that we're having now. And I don't know how long it's going to take to get, you know, as much vaccine as, as Manitobans are willing to, to take. But it looks like it's going to sort of potentially come in drips and drabs over several months. So that is not an ideal way to administer uh, a vaccine program. Uh, you want to sort of... You know, you want to be ready for the program. You want to build up momentum with uh, with uh, education and explanation, and then and then carry it through as, as as efficiently as you can, and as soon as you can to to get the benefit that you want. So, so that's a big challenge in this situation. And of course, there's also the fact that there's two doses instead of one. That adds quite a quite a uh, an important uh, additional um, challenge or barrier to. To getting people vaccinated to the degree uh, that that the goal of the program would have, and then this unusual, you know, issue of of the temperature control. I mean, a cold chain is not a new idea at all in in distributing vaccines, but uh, refrigeration is, you know, is the usual method and. The vaccines can be kept in in fridges for for several days, if not uh, several weeks, uh, in doctors' offices and public health offices. So, so this is quite a different problem, um, and it's a huge problem because of you know how how equitably can you distribute the the vaccine to to people in different parts of Manitoba, including isolated and northern communities. That's a huge challenge. And then, what will be the same, I guess, is as the challenge every flu year or H1N1 was how, how many people will, you know, will be willing to or wish to uh, get vaccinated. And and I think there's an additional challenge here for that, uh, which is, you know, the, the, the perception that this vaccine was produced in a sort of rush or that it was approved in a, in a faster process than usual. 
Uh, I'm not saying that either of those things, you know, are, are, are concerns from the point of view of quality or safety, but I think the perception may well be that. And so under this situation, how will that impact the, you know, the proportion of Manitobans that would choose to get the vaccine is, it's, it's a bit too early to say. So yeah, there's a lot of differences and a lot of, a lot of additional challenges which are, are going to be, ha- going to have to be dealt with here. Mm-hmm. Aside from the challenges around the vaccine itself, is that the biggest challenge? I mean, this is an optim. You know, we're we're all feeling, I think, some optimism today. It's been a long, you know, nine or ten months. Uh, but is that the biggest challenge? Getting enough people to take this vaccine? Well, uh, it could be, but there's other bigger questions that might be more important than that. I mean, I, I didn't mention the the challenge of prioritization. So when we talk about you know, what proportion of the population will get the vaccine. I mean, typically in a flu flu season, you know, one in four Manitobans uh, get the shot. During the pandemic H1N1, it was about one in three. So that's, you know, those numbers surprise many people. Um, the bigger question is who will get the shot? Because in the prioritization, again, depending on the strategy, is it to protect individuals at highest risk of severe disease? Clearly, that is an important part of this. For that part of the strategy, you really want those at highest risk because of age or having chronic health conditions uh, to get the vaccine and prioritize them uh, to have access to it. But then there's other groups that that are being prioritized for, for somewhat different reasons, uh, healthcare workers, uh, workers who are, you know, considered essential. Uh, we did in H1N1, we sort of made a list of everyone, you know, who was an essential worker in addition to healthcare workers. So, you know, people that, that needed to maintain our, 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 our electrical supply or, or, or gas, uh, you know, uh, services, etc., and right. groceries and all of those things. Mm-hmm. So, those people get prioritized because we don't want them to get sick and we don't want them to have to miss work for uh, 10 days or whatever the isolation period is going to be. So, and then we have the sort of third area, which is, you know, the hope that there will be, you know, a, a degree of herd immunity achieved by a large portion of the general population, whether they're in either of those two groups or not, to reduce spread. Uh, and, you know, and ideally, people talk about herd immunity to the point of actually stopping transmission of the disease, which is probably not practical because we don't live on an island where we can absolutely, you know, control, uh, you know, whether there's going to be new people coming in with the infection. But uh, so, there, so all of those are, are additional challenges. What we don't know Yet, and this might be one of, if not the most important issues, is um, you know just how well this vaccine is going to work uh, for those for whom we're most concerned. And this is the sort of paradox of many and uh, many vaccines, and influenza is probably the best example, which is those who are at highest risk for severe illness or death from influenza. The vaccine gets the least, you know, sort of immunological response uh, from those people. So, for the same reason that they're at risk for for more severe disease because their immune systems are are weaker or compromised, uh, they don't get the same protection from the vaccine. So, uh, although I although and I haven't seen I haven't seen the the actual data from the trials. Um, but the you know the word is that it seems to work pretty well in all age groups. Um, I don't know if that's true for people with cancer or 
on medications that suppress their immune systems or other things like that. Um, so if it turns out to, you know, to not work for those at highest risk, and if it turns out uh, to not last as long as we, as, as we hope the immunity will, you know, it may, it may turn out to be a bit of a disappointment in terms of the impact that it's going to have, even if we could uh, deliver it, you know, now or very soon. But if it's, mm-hmm. if it's going to take months and months and months to, to provide it, I'm not sure how much benefit it's going to be in the long run either. I mean, these, these viruses have an interesting sort of natural cycle of waves and, and, and come and go and, and then come back. Um, so, you know, it may be that there will be a kind of a natural way for this to dissipate even before or despite uh, the vaccine. It's so so complicated how it's hard to mm-hmm. it's hard to predict all that. Yeah, yeah, definitely lots of un- unanswered questions that that we we don't we just don't know yet. And you sort of touched on this one question I got from a listener here for you, Doctor Kettner. Why are we not vaccinating older folks first? Attack the problem at the source. So now we'll have vaccinated healthcare workers who are extremely um, tired and overworked with hospital numbers that continue to rise. So, you know, if, if you could weigh in on this, uh, the priority list, who gets it first, second, third, fourth, uh, do you like the way it's being approached, or, or does the listener have a point there? It's a great question. I, I, I think the details of the prioritization are still sort of being rolled out for Manitoba. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, I, I think those two groups is very good logic to, you know, to prioritize those at highest risk for se- severe disease, especially if the vaccine is effective to protect them. I think personally, I think, you know, that has always been that has always been the way we've prioritized influenza. We certainly did that with H1N1. It seems like a very logical thing to do. But your, 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 your listener's other point about, well, if I understood it right, it's sort of like if we could reduce the, 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 the hospital, uh, uh, the hospitalizations uh, right. from, from this disease, would that not take pressure off the work of the healthcare workers? Well, that's a good question, but you know, we have to, just as I think out loud about this, how, I mean, the, the health, our hospitals are pretty much always full. Our intensive care units are pretty much always full. Uh, that's, that's, that's not just during flu season, that's short all the time. Why? Because we don't want empty beds. You know, there's, if there's people that could benefit from being in hospital, we tend to, you know, use up the beds that are available. So that's not really a bad thing, although we need some flexibility, as the system does have, to manage that. So what I'm saying is, um, regardless of what proportion of patients in hospital, uh, you know, have a positive COVID test, and it looks like about 10 to 15 percent of hospitalized patients have had a positive COVID test, or and about a third to a half of ICU patients, healthcare workers are still going to be caring for you know, um, for patients in those settings. Mm-hmm. Maybe what's, you know, what's exhausting, I imagine, partly is, is all the personal protective equipment that they have to put on and take off. And it, it, I think it, it, I mean, I'm not working in the clinical world right now, so I'm not the best person to say this, but mm-hmm. from what I've talked to people, it's, it in itself is, 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 can have sort of exhausting aspects to it. But then if hospital workers, uh, you know, have to isolate for, 10 days or, or if, they're, if they get a positive test, that puts pressure on the staffing and everything else. So I think it is complicated, and I think there would be helpful 
you know, to re- reduce the number of severe cases of of COVID nineteen uh, on very on, on, for, for for many 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 reasons. So, I would definitely support what I think uh, is the decision that's been made is to keep n- near the top of the list uh, people at highest risk for for severe uh, illness. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we're seeing in most countries, from what I can gather. Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.